The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. I have been enjoying studying 1 Peter with you. Uh, it's been a great uh, book. We're in chapter 4. we still got a little ways to go. Uh, and, and as I've done every week, I, I like to just kind of keep us focused on uh, the context here because the context helps us understand the bigger picture. Um, so the historical context of this letter is that the church is being persecuted and Peter's writing to these Christians who have been dispersed out, running from persecution, knowing that there's this immense persecution on the horizon, that Rome will be persecuting through the Emperor Nero, persecuting the church in, in horrific, horrific ways, ways that are truly even understand because we've never experienced it. And so under that context, Peter writes in chapter 5, verse 12, his purpose for writing the letter. He says, I've written you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true testing. And he's trying to get their minds right for what's coming. His hope and his prayer is that they will stand firm in the face of immense trials and persecution. And for some of us, this is, there's this disconnect for us to really understand what this kind of persecution really looks like. We've, we, we haven't really experienced real persecution. Beating down our doors, come arrest us or beat us up. And I, I think it's safe for me to venture out and say that probably none of you have ever experienced anything like that. Yet, it is happening. We can see examples of there. They're killing them. They're doing horrible things to their kids. They're taking their daughters in, and away from the parents. They're taking the sons and brainwashing them to become Taliban fighters. All of this is unbelievable for someone like us living in this free country. But when we see it on the TV, we can kind of get a glimpse of what Peter's talking about here. So when, the, when we read Chapter 5, verse 12, we can picture what Peter is asking. They're facing that kind of reality. The Taliban's coming in and taking property and say, you don't own it anymore, it's mine, if you're a Christian. They're killing people, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and yet they're standing firm, and this is what Peter's asking these early Christians to do. In the midst of all of that, stand firm in the true grace of God. So Peter's really been focusing on getting these churches to get their mindset right. Perspective is so important when it comes to standing firm in the gospel. So remember, Peter starts off with the basics. If these Christians were going to endure persecution, they needed to be reminded of the elementary teachings of the faith. They needed to know the importance of remembering their salvation, surrendering in real faith, walking in sanctification, and maturing in faith. These elementary teachings help remind the Christian what their hope and future is in. So it's, it's important that we focus ourselves on our salvation, on the fact that we've been sanctified, on the fact that we're growing in our faith. Because when we focus on that, it's this reminder that God is at work within us. We can be confident in our salvation when we see that our faith is genuine. And we can be confident that our faith is genuine when we see how the Holy Spirit has produced genuine fruit and sanctification in our life. And when you look back and see what God has done in your life, it increases your faith in the power of the gospel. And if we can be confident in our salvation, 
we can be confident in our future. And if we can be confident in our future, we can do anything in the present for the glory of God. So let me try to illustrate this for you. Let's say when you came to Christ, a significant as you lay that sin before him and repent of it and ask him to change your heart. And then as you grow in your walk with Christ, he changes your affections and he changes your appetites. It's not that you don't still struggle with lust and, and, and sinful uh, temptation, but your appetites change. You no longer want that because you realize that sin brings and your walk with Christ, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, you slowly but surely become less trapped by that sin. So that when you look back in your life, you can see, man, God has changed my heart. I'm not the same person that I was. Yes, I still struggle with sin. Yes, I still have temptation and difficulties in life. But when I look back, I can see that God has moved in my life. And when that happens in your life, it encourages your faith to continue on so that when the circumstances of life that I was before you see how that works your appetites have changed because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that's proof of God's work in your life and that ability to look back and see God at work changing your affections and your appetites increases your faith in God and love for God and it gives you strength to endure whatever suffering may come that's why Peter's reminding these people of these things after that, we got into the heart of Peter's letter, and we spent four weeks talking about what real faith, sanctification, and Christian maturity looks like. And the overarching idea of those four weeks is that a genuine believer who is maturing in their faith will live their life for the God. They're going to be more focused on maintaining their testimony and advancing God's kingdom than they are their own rights, more than their own desires, and more than their own comforts. They can live with this purpose because of the perspective that we just finished talking about. And if you're living for your eternal future in glory, your only thought in the present is living whatever life you have left for the glory of God. If that's your focus, if your focus is on the future hope of glory, of what's to come then all of the stuff here, you're living your life now for that reality. You're not living your life now for self. You're not living your life now for comfort and, and, and security. You're living your life now for the future hope and glory. It's all about perspective. To submit to and honor the same governing authorities that ultimately become complicit in killing them. Peter tells these Christians to endure unjust suffering and persecution in order to testify to the power of Christ in them for the glory of God. This is what it means to be a Christian church. It means that God's spirit has changed you in such a powerful way that you completely abandon your desires and security for the sake of Christ. Not in an attempt to be self-righteous, but out of a genuine love and faith in God. This leads us to our text this morning. So let's read, starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished 
with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who were now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit. Peter talking about here is arm yourself with Christ-like understanding. Therefore, is a reference back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He laid aside his rights for the kingdom. Peter says he did that so that he could bring you to God. That was the greater purpose. His suffering was for a reason so that he could bring you to God. Christ's purpose in enduring suffering was so that you and I could experience freedom from sin, so that you and I could be reconciled back to God, so that you and I could come out from under the wrath of God and enter into the family of God. Jesus didn't die because people killed him. He went willingly. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus is saying, look, no, nobody's taking my life from me. He laid his own life down willingly on his own because he is the good shepherd, and there were other sheep that needed to be brought into the sheep pen. That was his purpose. That was his purpose for laying down his life so that he could reconcile the world back to God. He could have stopped the whole thing at any point, but he willingly laid down his life. He willingly endured unjust suffering. He willingly trade, traded his righteousness for our unrighteousness, all so that the Father could be glorified and the kingdom could be advanced. And listen to me this morning. Look, look at me. This is the mindset that you should have. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying that we should arm understanding. Listen, Christian, this should be your mindset. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the reality of what God has done in your life, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul says, lay your life down before God. This is what is holy and pleasing to God. Because of what God has done for you, you should lay your life down before God completely. This is your true worship. But he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to me. We need to change. We need to change. Think like the world. You're not thinking right. You got to change the way that you think, the way that you view the world, the way that you see reality. You need to have the mindset of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. When you surrender to Jesus, you put to death your desires and ambitions and you were made alive by the Spirit. And if that's true about you, then your life is not your own anymore. 
You're a slave to Christ. You live this life for the glory of God and building the kingdom because your focus is on the future hope of glory. Peter says we should have the same mindset as Christ. We just talked about this a few months ago in Philippians in chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality. Because he saw the greater purpose. And Peter's point is that you should have that same mindset. That you humble yourselves and endure suffering for the glory of God. That your focus in this life is not about you and your desires and your securities. But your focus in this life is on the glory of God. And so if that means that you have to be punished and beaten and mocked. Then you endure that for the glory of God. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to actually follow his example. You can't claim to be a Christ follower and reject his example. Notice Peter says, arm yourself. What does he mean by that? It's a military term. It invokes this idea of being prepared for battle. And listen to me. I think it's time that we acknowledge that there's a serious spiritual war happening uh, all around us. We tend to be a little bit naive and think that we've got it all under control, especially the longer that we do this church thing, right? The longer that we come to church and the Holy Spirit starts to sanctify us and we start to not struggle as much with the same sins that we once struggled with, we start to get this real churchy mindset that, man, I've got all this figured out. I've got all this under control. Look at me and listen to me this morning. You don't have anything under control. Your propensity is heaven to save. Desire within you, even when you're living out your life and all of those like outwardly sins aren't public, the inwardly stuff is still stuff that is drawing you away from living your life for the glory of God. Verse 8, he says, Be sober minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Listen to me, church, you have an adversary. You can't roam around this life just thinking you, it's, it's easy and it's, there's no it. No, you have someone who is looking to destroy your life. He's looking to destroy your effectiveness for the kingdom. He's looking to destroy your marriage. He's looking to destroy. You're not. Your natural instinct is to sin. Your natural instinct is to dethrone Christ from the throne of your heart and assume the role of God in your life. That is what your natural instinct is and will always be this side of heaven. Your natural instinct is to reject our biblical purpose and choose rather to focus on the here and now with things like our careers and our kids' education and our kids' sports and all of these Worldly things that lead us to meaningless busyness. We're so busy doing the stuff that doesn't matter that we don't have time to do what God has actually called us to do. Add that to the fact that the world is going to hate you for sincerely following Jesus. And that's a triple threat. 
You've got an adversary looking to kill you. You've got this own flesh inside of you warring against you, and the world hates you, and it's not. All of that fighting against you. And knowing all of this, Peter says, in order to combat all of that, arm yourself with the same mindset of Christ. Arm yourself with the mindset of Christ. We've got to get our minds right. We've got to get our focus right. Arm yourself with the same mindset of Christ, with this intense pursuit of the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. How do we avoid getting into the trap of selfish idolatry? We set laser focus on the prize. We set a laser focus on the glory of God and building his kingdom. Because, listen, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Don't get wrapped up in the stuff. Stay focused. And when we do that, what happens? Well, here's point one. Some of you are like, oh, wow, we're just not a point one. Yes, we are. Released from former sin. When we do that, we're released from former sin. Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. When I was in high school, I was a lifeguard at a camp, Camp Tukula, and uh, I had to go to lifeguard training for that. And uh, there was this particular uh, training event that we had to do. It was, the purpose was to kind of simulate how someone drowning could drown you. I don't know if you've ever tried to save someone that's drowning. What do they do? They reach up and grab you, and then they drown you too, and it's, a, it's this really un, unfortunate thing. And so what you have to do is you have to kind of fight that, and, and they give you some techniques to, to, to deal with that. Well, um, we, we, we had this guy who was one of our instructors. Man, he was massive. He was like probably 400 pounds. And he's like one of those people like, he's not going to drown. He just would float. But, uh, but he, was, he was massive. I'm telling you, his hands were huge. Um, and And so he's flailing around, and they teach you to try to get behind him, and, and that way he can't reach around and grab you. You try to get behind him, you splash water in his face so he can't see you. That's some of the techniques they teach you. And, uh, and so I'm kind of doing that, but this dude's massive, and it takes a lot of water to splash that dude's face. And so I'm trying to, uh, to work around him, and, and I get close enough, and, man, he, he gets a hold of me with those big old giant hands. He grabs me and just wraps his arm around me, and we start to sink. And, man, he's, like, super serious about the simulation. I'm like, all right, you got me. Let me go. He did not let me go. Like, he held on to me, and we're sinking. And I don't know if you've ever, like, been held underwater, like, when you're a kid, your, kid, you know, your friends are playing with you, and they hold you underwater a little bit too long, where you're, like, you get to that point where you're, like, I'm about to have to take a big breath, and I know I'm going to take in a bunch of water, and I'm going to die, and this is how I go. Like, this is, I really start to, like, think, I'm, this is bad. I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't get out of this guy's grip, and I'm, I'm at that point where I have zero air left. And so I did the only thing I knew to do, and I need him as hard as I possibly could. And he let me go. And, uh, and I was free from the clutches of his ginormous hands. Uh, I was trapped. I was legitimately starting to get scared that I was going to pass out. And so I knee him, and I'm finally released. If you've ever almost drowned like that, you, you know that that first gasp. I'm like, all right, I get to live another day. I'm just drown. 
Peter says the one who suffers in the flesh. The person that has this mindset that we've been talking about. The person that is willing to lay it all down for the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. That person is finished with sin. Now, the way this is translated can be misleading. Peter isn't saying that the Christian no longer sins. This is why we need to have a holistic view of Scripture. It's important that we don't just cherry-pick little parts. Can you read that and you can think, the Christian no longer sins. I'm not a sinner. That's not how that works. The Apostle Paul tells us that he does the things he knows he shouldn't do and doesn't do the, the things he knows he should do. Paul still wrestled with sinful desires, and so does every other Christian this side of heaven. If you dig into the language here, a more accurate translation would be that the one who suffers in the flesh is released from sin. There's a difference. So if, if you come to Jesus with bondage to sexual sin, yes, you may struggle with temptation towards sexual sin for the rest of your life, but the Spirit empowers you with that sin. Yes, you may struggle with anger and hatred and prejudice, but the Spirit empowers you to be victorious over that sin. Through the power of the Spirit within us, we're released from the power of sin in our life. Paul talks about this when he's writing to the Romans in Romans 6, verse 1. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue on in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. He's making this point. Should we, should we just say, well, God's grace is there, so let's just continue to live on in our sin, and God's going to forgive us. He's already promised he would forgive us, so let's just live on in sin. No, Paul says, no, that's not how this thing works. He says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin anymore. If you've legitimately surrendered your life to Christ, you've been freed from sin. This is why it makes no sense that a Christian would be unchanged by the gospel. It makes no sense that a Christian would live in unrepentant sin. This, these things don't work. They don't, they don't go together. You can't continue to live in sin and call yourself a Christian because the Christian has been freed from sin. We've been released from the power of sin in our life. Paul says that we've been raised so that we can walk in newness of life and that sin has been rendered powerless so that we are no longer enslaved by it. Listen, you've heard me preach this before, and I'll continue to preach it until I'm dead. You can't truly be a Christian and live in rebellion to the things of God. You cannot call yourself a Christian and live in rebellion to the things of God. If you can live in lawless sin, listen, I'm not falling short. No one's perfect. I'm talking about choosing to live in rebellion against what you know to be the will of God in your life. I'm talking about, I know, the, I know God's word says this, but that mentality, if that's your mentality, you are not a Christian. You've not truly given your life to Christ. The Christian can't continue to live on in sinful rebellion 
It's freed you from sin. I'm not trying to judge you or be mean to you. I'm telling you what the book says. I'm telling you what the book says because I love you. And I pray for you all week. Man, I prayed all week this week because I knew what we were getting into and I know what our culture looks like in Southeast Texas that there are so many people who have bought into this. I go to church and I'm, I'm a, if my good outweighs my bad, when I go to heaven, I'm going to be good. That's not how this works. A, a person who has truly surrendered their life to Christ has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them and cannot, cannot be enslaved to sin. The gospel is too powerful for that. If you're truly saved, you will be freed from the stronghold of sin in your life. And if you're truly saved, listen to me this morning, if you're truly saved, that reality will be of infinite value to you. If you grasp the reality that you've been freed from sin, if you understand the gravity and the weight of sin and the destruction that it brings to your life and to your family's life and to your children's life and to the world that we live in, if you've come to that realization, if the, if the Holy Spirit has unveiled that truth to you, then you cannot continue to live in sin because you hate sin. And you've come to the understanding that the reality of this world and about the fallen state of man. I agree with God about these truths and I hate sin like God hates sin. And so yes, you may sin. Yes, you may mess up. But when you do, you mourn that. You hate that about yourself and you long for the reality that one day we're going to be in God's presence and sin will no longer be a part of who we are. That's what the Christian life is about. And if that's not you this morning, listen to me. I love you, and I, I'm not trying to judge you. But if that's not you, if you can continue in sin, and you love sin, and you want to continue to walk in that, and it has no conviction in your life, you're not a Christian. And on the day that you stand before Jesus, he will say to you, depart from me, you work of iniquity, for I never knew you. And I don't want that for you. As your pastor, I do not want that for you. And I will yell at you every single Sunday if it means that one day the Holy Spirit will awaken you to this truth. We long for our future hope and glory because when we finally will be freed from our flesh altogether, and at that point we'll be glorified and there will be no sin. Peter says you've been released from sin so that while you live out your remaining days on this earth, you can do it according to God's will rather than your own desires. Sin no longer has a power over you. Why? So that you can not waste your life living for self. You've been freed from that. But you can live your life with eternal purpose, living for the glory of God and pursuing his will for your life. Peter says there's already been enough time. There's already been enough time doing what the Gentiles do. There's already been enough time wallowing in the depths of sin and the effects it has on your life. Listen, Christian, you have to believe this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Do we get that? Because if we get that, that changes our relationship with sin.
Peter says, for the Christian, for the person who has crucified their self and given themselves over to Christ and his will for their lives, that that person's been released from the power of sin in their life. Not only that, but they've been released from deserved judgment. Look at verse 4. He says, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. They will give an account to the one to judge the living and the dead. When I was making those trips to Camp Tukula as a teenager, every Sunday, we'd come home on the weekend and drive back on Sunday evening. Uh, When I would make those trips... I didn't always tend to drive the speed limit. It kind of became a game to see who could make it there the, f- the fastest, which is really mature. And was, I mean, I was 16, so it is what it is. I'd already gotten a couple of tickets, and, uh, you know, I haven't always been the brightest person. Sometimes I'm a slow learner. One night I'm cruising, I'm listening to the radio, some you know, some early, like, 2000s Christian rock, like some Switchfoot or something. All of a sudden, I get the red and blues in my back window. And in that moment, I knew that that's, like, the final That three tickets, dad, dad's killing me. He's taking the truck away, and I'm going to be, I'm going to, that's it. I'm going to be in the ground. I'm going to be buried. And so... I feel like every time I get pulled over, your heart starts to be a little bit fast. But this time it was really intense because I'm like, I got to tell my parents about this when I get home. And they're going to kill me. Um, and so I, I was guilty. I definitely was speeding. Um, I deserved a ticket. And I deserved whatever wrath ultimately would entail from my parents later. But the cop was super chill. And he, he, he let me off with just a warning. And this is a cop like... I don't want them country roads. It's a speed trap. Like, they're never super chill and cool. Like, this, he, he just totally let me off. I, I believe that it was because God had a plan for my life and he wanted me to live longer. <laughs> but he let me off with a warning, showed me mercy. I want us to notice something in Peter's writing here in his wording. Notice there's a clear separation that he's giving us here. Or separation. They slander you, they who stands ready to judge. Not only are we released from the power of sin, but we're released from the judgment that comes with it. If they will give an account, that statement is, is that Christians are released from the judgment. When we stand before God, he won't judge us by our unrighteousness, but he will judge us by the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me this morning, this is the gospel. This is the ultimate trade, that you take your filthy rags, your inability to earn favor with God, your inability to earn righteousness, you take that, you lay it before Christ, he takes your unrighteousness and he imputes on you his righteousness so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your filthy rags and your unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ so that on that last day when you deserve judgment for your sin, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
That's the gospel. That's why we're here. What other reason would we have to gather here? You can go join any other club and, and have fun hanging out with people in any other place. The reason that we gather here on Sundays is to celebrate that reality that you are no longer going to stand in condemnation for your because of the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3, verse 8, Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. After Paul, who once thought that righteousness was earned through good behavior and earnest devotion, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized that his best was but filthy rags before God. And he realized that he had no righteousness in his own efforts, and he realized that right standing before God was only obtained through faith in Christ. Listen, being a good person does not cut it. Being a moral conservative does not cut it. Being raised in church doesn't cut it. Trying your best to make sure that your good outweighs your bad doesn't cut it. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and you're like, hey, are you a Christian? And they're like, yes, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. I was born a Christian. That's impossible. You're born into sin. And at some Repent of that sin and surrender your life to Jesus or you are not a Christian. You were not born into Christianity because Christianity is not something that can be inherited. It is a decision that you have to make to surrender your life to Christ. And in that moment, then the righteousness of Christ is on you. So the question is, what side of the equation are you on? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ or are you the they in that passage? Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And The Christian is clothed in a robe of righteousness, not earned by his own efforts, but given by the grace of God through faith. Peter says that they are surprised that you don't engage in their lawless living and they ridicule you for it. Those that are apart from Christ are surprised at those that have completely surrendered to Jesus. They're on the outside looking in and it seems so ludicrous. Why would somebody really live their life like that? Why would somebody live their life so selflessly? Why would someone endure persecution for the glory of God? When they look in from the outside, it seems ludicrous, and they ridicule people for it. There are even people in our churches that can't fathom it. We see it when... We'll send our money. Oh, man, that's awesome. We'll come in. But then behind closed doors, we're like, man, they're crazy. They got kids. Don't they love their kids? What are we saying? What side of the equation are we on when we say stuff like that? We see it when people leave churches. Parents placed on their life and pursue a comfortable living. We've even invented phrases for it. We call it hyper-Christianity. Or radical 
Christianity. Listen to me this morning. Hyper-Christianity and radical is Christianity. There is no in-between. What do we read in, in Revelation? Jesus says, look, you're Luke. Throw up. I'm going to spit you out. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This makes no sense for the person that hasn't truly surrendered to Jesus. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, then the idea of denying yourself and your desires, taking up your cross, literally laying your life on the line for the gospel, none of that makes sense. But listen to me this morning. There is no following Jesus without denying yourself and taking up your cross. You're not following Jesus. If you're not denying yourself and taking up your cross and crucifying your selfish desires, then you're not following Jesus. For the person that hasn't, hasn't truly surrendered to Jesus, a life that is surrendered to Jesus is absurd. But a true follower of Jesus cries out, let the ridicule come. Because who wants to be the they in that equation? I don't want to be judged for my own righteousness. Because I ain't got none. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I know that I'm guilty and I deserve the wrath of God, but thank God for the gospel. Thank God that Jesus' blood atones for my sin and I can be released from the judgment that I deserve. We've got to speed this process up. All right, verse 6. Released from vain pursuits. He says, For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to assumption to think we all want our life to matter, right? I think that's a safe assumption that everybody, even the, the pagans in the world, we want our life to matter. We want to leave a legacy. We want to continue on. We want our lives to mean something. Everyone wants their life to count. But it's only in a relationship with Christ that we can fulfill our true purpose. It's only in a relationship with Christ that our life can actually have an eternal positive impact. The non-Christian lives their life for self. They pursue things like job promotion, financial gains, vacation, retirement, nice and safe neighborhoods, activities. That is evil. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Having a nice house in a nice neighborhood is not an evil thing. But if you're living your life for that, that idolatry is evil. If God made it abundantly clear that he wanted you to sell your stuff and move to a foreign country to proclaim his goodness, would you do it? Would you do it? Would you lay it all down? If the answer is anything other than a resounding yes, then listen to me. I love you, but you have an idolatry problem. Now, that seems like a really harsh thing to say, right? It seems like I'm kind of crossing a line there. It's in the book. That's what we're talking about. Extreme devotion to crucify self means that if God calls you to what that thing is, your answer is yes. 
Listen, if, if Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord. Do we see how that works? Again, there's no hyper-Christianity or radical Christianity. It's just Christianity. I feel like a lot of us are missing this. And, and, and why do I think that? Because we're not even telling our neighbors about the goodness of God. What, is Pe- what, 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 what does what Peter is saying here have to do with purpose? He says, because there are people that are in danger of being judged for their righteousness, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. That is the Christian pursuit. That's the Christian pursuit. That's what you live your life for. You're the preacher called to preach those that are now dead. Believers have been released from vain pursuits. We don't have to chase after the wind, as Solomon says. We don't have to live a vain life of busyness. We're freed from living for the weekend. We're free from all of that. You don't have to live this daily grind that everybody else lives. You're freed from vain pursuit. We've been redeemed for a greater purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God by preaching the gospel to the lost world around us. Remember what we read in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a genuine believer, folks, glory of God, you've been freed from vain pursuits and have been set on a course in life to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is your pursuit. That is what you aim your life at. This changes your days. You don't have to dread your days. You don't have to wake up with this misery. You can wake up with joy knowing that you get to go to your mission field and live in the purpose that God has for your life. So when you're at work, you work diligently for the Lord, viewing your work as a place, as your workplace as a mission field. And if you get a promotion, it's a new opportunity, opportunity to continue with that mindset. You're not living for the promotion. You're living for the glory of God. And as you live that life out, you're proclaiming the excellencies of God. Wherever you live, you use that house as an opportunity to host your neighbors and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. If you're blessed with financial abundance, you use that for the glory of God to proclaim the excellencies of God. Listen, the way of the world is selfish living. That's not the way of the Christian. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Listen, Christian, don't don't live your life like that. Don't live your life for the things of this world. Live your life for the glory of God. With the same understanding as Christ. Abandon your heart God at the in the expansion of his kingdom. This is real Christianity. This is what enables believers to die for the gospel. Take a moment just to be real with you. I'm wrapping up. I know we're we're out of time. The children's workers are going to hate me. I want to take a moment just to be real with you because you're my people and I love you. As your pastor, as someone who loves you and prays for you, I'm concerned that there's a large population in our church 
not just the church, but even in our church, that doesn't get this. Not to mention what our community looks like. We think that because we're raised in church, or because we recited a prayer, or because we're that somehow, somehow that's enough. It's not enough. It will never be enough because you can't obtain righteousness on your own. You need to surrender your life to Christ. That's the only answer. You need to surrender your life to Christ. I'm not talking about some kind of trivial, like, okay, I'll try to be a good person and not cuss as much and not do these things. No, no. That's, that's the wrong thinking. I'm asking you to surrender your life to Christ and then allow his spirit to work in you and change you. Surrendering your life to Christ means that literally anything that he asks of you, that's what you do. And if you're not prepared to do that, then you've not surrendered your life to Christ. And I'm not saying that it's not going to give you some anxiety to think about the fact, man, well, if God calls me to some bush in Africa, like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not saying it's not going to give you anxiety. Look at anybody in the scripture. They struggled with that faith. But you still put your yes on the table. You still surrender it all to Christ. And listen to me this morning. I've told you at the beginning of this series that I, I really do believe that there's persecution coming for the church on the horizon. We're, we're living in this post-Christian world. And it may not happen in our lifetime, but it's going to probably happen in our kids' lifetime or maybe in our grandkids' lifetime. And, if, and, and we're not prepared for it. That's been my point all along. Is I'm not prepared for it and you're not prepared for it. The church as a whole is not prepared for it. If we can't go to our next door neighbor, ring the doorbell and say, hey, we'd love to have you over for dinner and then ultimately try to share the gospel with them, then when they come beating down your door and say, are you a believer? you're not going to stand for the gospel. If you're not standing for the gospel now, when it's so easy, you're not going to stand for the gospel later. Listen, my heart's burdened by the fact that the church has become so wrapped up in the things of this world. Our treasure is not heaven. Our treasure is this world. And, and we got to be honest about that. We've put our hope and our trust in things that we can control. And that's so antithetical towards what the scriptures teach us. And I'm imploring you, I am begging you as your pastor to open your eyes. I've been praying for so long that God would awaken our spirit to the reality of what the truth of the gospel is and that we would stop playing church games. Church games are just, they're so fake. It's miserable. I hate it. I hate the facade that the church has created. I've lived my whole life in church. And my experience with church is that we are a bunch of fake people that like to pretend that we really love God, but we live out in this world. We, we, we have the same values. We spend our money the same way as the world. We do the same things as the world. And I'm just so tired of it. I want us to really genuinely have the mindset of Christ that, that, that Peter's talking about here. To stop playing the games. It does us no good to pretend that we're good people. We're not. We're not good people. We have evil, sinful desires that we're going to wrestle with until we die and, and, and go to heaven. So let's be honest about that. 
Let's wrestle with that. Let's allow the Spirit to change us. You can't have the Spirit living in you and live in rebellion against God. It doesn't work that way. You guys remember the old Frank Sinatra song, I Had It My Way, or I Did It My Way? I was talking to Brent about that song this week. That's how a lot of us are living. I know God's word says this, and I know I'm supposed to, as a Christian, I'm supposed to do this, but I'm just going to do it my way. Listen to me. I've been trying to be really clear with this this morning. If that's your heart, you're not a Christian. And my prayer, my hope for you is that the Holy Spirit is revealing that to you, and you will surrender to him and stop playing phony church games. A real Christian denies themselves, they've taken up their cross, they've counted the cost, they've crucified selfish living, all so that they can follow Jesus. There is no following Jesus without crucifying self. This may be a hard truth to hear, but it's what the book says. And you have to decide if you're going to continue on living I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul's life was radically changed by the gospel, and so he didn't live his life for self. He lived his life for the glory of God. He says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, he forgot all the stuff that he left behind. Sometimes we we want to get wrapped up about all the stuff that we're giving up to become a Christian. He, he, He stopped focusing on that, and he reached forward to what is ahead. He says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. Paul wasn't perfect, but he didn't focus on the life that he gave up. He didn't get wrapped up in focusing on the circumstances in the present. He reached forward towards the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is what Christianity is all about. So, Here's where we're at. If you're not pursuing the glory of God and building his kingdom, only two things are possible. One, you're an immature believer and God will change your heart about these things. Paul says that. My prayer and hope this week has been that he will use this passage of scripture to convict you of that and and, and awaken the reality that you still have a lot of growing to do. Or two, you're not a Christian. You may be a moral conservative. You may fit in really well with Christians. You may like coming to church and the community that we have, but none of that makes you a Christian. Only repenting. And listen, repenting is not just feeling guilty. A lot of times we come to church, we hear a convicting message, we feel guilty, we go home and continue to live the same life we lived before. That's not repentance. It's only in repenting of sin and surrendering to Jesus in faith. That's what makes you a Christian. So here's the takeaway. If you're in the first camp, ask God to change your heart. Ask him to mature you in this understanding. Ask him to get in the word. Find some real Christian accountability. Paul says in that same passage of Philippians, Verse 17, chapter 3, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Find someone who is being a true example of this and ask them to help you grow and mature. You shouldn't have to do it alone. 
mature Christians who have been doing this for a while, who are you, who are you mentoring? Who are you the example to? If you're in the second camp, my hope and prayer for you is that you'll give your life to Christ this morning. You'll stop playing church games. You'll stop playing this conservative evangelical game that this culture has created, and you'll that your mindset will be open to the reality of what what we've been talking about this morning. Give your life to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Surrender your whole life to Him. Submit to Him as the King of your life. More into the image of Christ. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? changing things up a little bit this morning with our invitation. I know for many, the idea of walking down front here and talking to someone is the most terrifying thing that could ever happen in your life. You'd probably rather be shot to death than have to actually walk down in front and, and, and talk to a person. And so we're changing things up a little bit. We're actually going to have people standing to the sides in each section. they got lanyards indicating that they're there to, to help talk with you. If you have never given your life to Christ, if you're realizing this morning that You've been playing some kind of Christian game and and there's this facade that you've been putting up, but you're not truly a Christian and you're ready this morning to surrender your life to Jesus. Or maybe you just want to talk to somebody more about that. Then as the band sings here in a moment, I would encourage you to step out into the aisle, grab one of them by the hand, and have that conversation with them. That's what they're there for. We want to be able to help you understand the truth of this. I'll grab one by the hand and say, hey, I I want to talk to someone about knowing Christ. If you're in that first camp of, hey, I know I'm a Christian, I know I've given my life to Christ, but I've got a lot of growing to do in this. My mindset's not where it needs to be yet. Then I would encourage you, whether you're at, where you're at or down at these altars, to come and ask God to change your heart. Ask him to grow you in this. I'm praying that our church will grow in this reality, this understanding that, that our lives as Christians should be lived for the glory of God. That's what I'm praying for you. That's what I'm praying for myself. That's what I'm praying for our staff that we would be a church that is real and authentic and not living out this Christian cultural thing, but that we are authentic in our faith. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to sing, and however God's leading you to respond, I would challenge you to, to, to surrender to that leading. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for conviction because conviction means that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Conviction is this doorway into a deeper relationship with you. So God, I pray this morning that we're all feeling convicted, that we're all recognizing that that we're not perfect, we've not achieved true understanding of who you are and, and, and a true holiness in our lifestyle. But God, that we would that we would pursue that that we would pursue your glory in all of our dealings, in all of our relationships, in all of our activities in life, and at the sports field with the kids, and, and, and at home with, with, with our families, and, and our jobs, and, and out in the community as we serve on boards and committees, and we're involved in PTA, and we're picking up kids from school, and we're doing all of these things. God, I pray that you, would, that you would just make us a people who are authentic and real, not some facade of, of a people who proclaim to believe in you but have no fruit in their lives, but that we would be a church who is genuine with our fruit through the power of your spirit in our lives. God, I pray that you would move in this time.
church. Let me pray. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.